at this time, we're blessed to have our second message for the day. It is uh, entitled, Our Admonition, Therefore, is Fight for the Faith. Good afternoon. Wonderful to see everyone here. As it always is on another beautiful Sabbath day. So, as Matt mentioned, uh, the title of this message is Our Admonition. So, it's not typically a word that we use very often, but that word means warning. And so, to start this message off, I was thinking about a story that just happened the last few weeks. For about three weeks now, uh, I've been helping my mother and so has my family with helping clean out her garage and, in particular, her, the, my father's workshop that's attached to the garage. And after 40 plus years of living there, I've concluded that my father was quite the pack rat, and I don't think he ever threw anything away. And I can't really say a lot because I feel like I have a little bit of that in me as well. But in the process, and why we decided to do this on the hottest summer in the last 10 years is, I don't know, but we will never do that again. We learned our, our lesson. While we were cleaning out the garage, the shop, we had a 40-foot uh, dumpster delivered to our driveway, and we filled that thing up in just a couple days, and we maybe hit just a little bit of a dent in, in all the things that my dad had. But in the middle of all of these different things, we're talking about stuff from his dad, stuff from maybe even his grandparents, we came across dozens, and I meant to bring one today, of these rectangle plastic things that kids would probably want to know what in the world they were that was in a white sleeve. Maybe you've heard of them before, VHS tape. And they were VHS tape of my father giving sermonettes right behind this pulpit. Not only did he have VHS tapes of himself, he had other individuals, all of whom had an impact on my life. Roger Housman. Any of you remember Roger Housman? We have kind of a memorial to Roger Housman outside where the tree is, where the sidewalk goes. And my uncle, Tommy McMurray. And I was thinking, as I was preparing this message today, I found a, my mother has like a TV that's one of those small TVs and attached to it, a part of it's a VHS, and I went back and, and watched some of them. But as I was preparing this message today, I thought of those three individuals and the impact and the influence that they had on my life and some of the, I guess you'd say, the, the mood, the emotions that would kind of come to me, like, you know, all very warm. I remember Roger Housman, I think he passed away in 2003. I think I was a senior in high school or maybe a little bit after that. Maybe it was before that, I'm not sure. But I remember how much he took the time, and he did this with many people, to just take an interest in me, talk to me, tell me stories. I remember one year at the Peace of Tabernacles at Western Hills, my dad, avid fisherman, as many of you know, Larry Whiteley was my father's name. Uh, he passed away a couple years ago. 
he was a big bass fisherman, and he had all these bass trophies that he had taken, that he had won, maybe third place, fourth place, whatever. He removed the decals off of them, and he decided to have a kid's fishing tournament at the Feast of Tabernacles at Western Hill. And so my dad was the organizer of it, so he took all these old trophies, and he just had plaques made that he could put on all these old trophies. And I was the son of a big-time fisherman, but I really didn't know. I mean, I was probably, I don't know, six, seven, maybe eight years old. And Roger Hausman, my dad's busy running around trying to do this event, this activity. I remember distinctly Roger Hausman coming over there, and I was just down in the dumps, like, I'm never going to catch anything. And he just said, you see that out there? There's a whole school of fish, I guarantee you. And he actually just gave me some simple advice, and I was able to get second place in that tournament. Now, I, admittedly so, there was just a bunch of, it, was, it wasn't like rules, like how much weight, it was just as many fish as you can get, and I just basically caught a perch every time I cast out there, because perch will eat anything. And then Tommy McMurray, my uncle, who passed away several years now, who is, was married to my Aunt Jeanette, I don't know if she's listening or not, but I worked for my uncle Tommy for several summers growing up. I'd go there, and it's interesting because when I was a kid, I loved my Uncle Tommy, and I loved him being a carpenter. You know, he worked in construction. He was a drywall person. They did the add-on to our den at my house, and I was just, he would take me to lunch with them when they went on their lunch break, and maybe give me a hammer to carry around or like a tool belt. And so I, I really idolized him and really looked up to him, but then later, I realized uh, stuff that he does isn't as uh, fun as it looks because I started working for him and realized how hard and difficult construction jobs are. And see, he built his own house that he had in Broken Arrow, and he kind of did it from the ground up. And I kind of helped him that. And I remember one summer working for him, and he would always just talk to me about stories. Stories in particular about things that he had experienced, maybe knucklehead decisions he had made in his life, things that he had seen happen to other people. And these were stories that, you know, at the time, I'm like, why is he talking to me about these things? But now as an adult, of course, I, I realize why he was. And of course, my dad as well. I mean, obviously, there's way too many things that I could get into, the different things that my dad taught me or, you know, talked to me about and, and things like that. But I do remember, interestingly enough, something's always stuck out in my head. And that is, when I was a teenager, I guess maybe my dad felt like I was a little bit of a hothead. You know, he read the paper like every morning, right? You know, the old look where someone's sitting in a chair and they got their two hands like this and they have these large pieces of paper. That was very common while he drank his coffee. Growing up as a kid, though, I remember specifically in my teenage years, I was starting to drive, and he knew how kids can kind of get into things. He would always point out certain stories in the news, specifically about things that would happen that resulted in someone getting badly hurt or injured or even killed. Like, he would always talk to me whenever I would be leaving, and I would talk to him maybe about something that happened, Driving down the road, someone did something, or some kids from some other school. I was a part of a, you know, a group of friends. We played football. We had rivals, cross-town rivals with different people that we would sometimes run into. And he would always tell me, Curtis, you never know what that person has. 
because he would read stories about something so simple as someone making a comment to somebody at a store or driving down the street, particularly probably young people, people around my age, and one of them pulls out a gun and shoots him or a knife, and someone ends up getting badly injured or killed. So this got me started to think about how blessed I have been to have such positive influences in my life. These individuals who obviously had faults of their own, but they gave me lessons that I didn't appreciate at the time, but of course, as I'm older now, I appreciate them now. And the Apostle Paul did the same thing for this group of people in Corinth. This church that he founded, he also gave them admonitions, warnings, and in particular, trying to point them in history about things that have befallen ancient Israel. We're not going to go into everything with this church, but we've read it several times. It's packed with so many different things going on in this church. Corinth was a group of people that Paul had founded, and they were in the middle of a very pagan society, and some of the believers had gotten themselves wrapped up in this paganism, this idolatry. Believers were seemingly taking each other to the secular courts, suing each other. Some of them were committing sexual immorality. There's even a case where, I guess, a gentleman took his father's wife as his wife. So Paul's talking to these people and giving them an admonition, starting a warning, starting in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. And so what I want to do is, is we're going to read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 22, but I don't want to read all of them at the same time. I have three primary points today taken from this. Let's read 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verse 1 through 5. Paul starts out by saying, Moreover, moreover brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed to the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And so my first point is, number one, and this is going to be an overarching point of all of it, don't take our blessings for granted. We've been given tremendous blessings. And in this section, Paul presents us with this comparison. He's talking to this church in Corinth, which is made up with primarily Gentile believers. And he's talking and bringing this parallel between the church and ancient Israel. And he's not so much giving them a history lesson because the way that he presents it is as if he thinks that they should know this story, but he's giving them a history reminder, a refresher. He refers here to Israel as our fathers because while there is differences between the church and Israel, the church has not replaced Israel. There is continuity between Christians, the church, the body of Christ, and Israel. And there is, of course, continuity, not just in the story, but also in the experiences of these individuals. Specifically, Paul points out that despite Israel's blessings, and we're going to go through those as Paul just presented, most of them failed at their mission. And their mission was to enter into the promised land. Of course, 
later generations of Israel did enter into the promised land. But Paul is specifically talking about this first generation of Exodus individuals who, in his mind, Corinthians, the Corinthian believers could benefit from learning and, and heeding the warnings of this story because they were coding at the edge just like Israel did. So he presents these five blessings, these five similar blessings between Israel and the blessings of the church. The first one was they experienced a supernatural deliverance. And we've read this story, the story of the Red Sea. I mean, that one of the key parts of Israel's history is they're in Egypt, God delivers them, and not only does he deliver them, but he also demonstrates his power by defeating one of the most ferocious armies of the day. By parting this Red Sea, the Israelites pass through with their enemies behind them, Pharaoh coming after them with his army, and of course, the Red Sea falling on them. And we can go back even further. They didn't just start with the Red Sea. It started with God choosing Moses. And Moses pleading with Pharaoh, God's command to him, ignoring them, and the plagues, and eventually, of course, the smearing of the blood of a lamb over the doorposts of their houses. And so he delivers Israel out of Egypt. In the New Testament, it's a very obvious parallel that we see with Christ. This idea of a deliverance of salvation, we too have been blessed with the same things, the same things and an even better deliverance. In particular, we know that in this very letter, 1 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, Paul says that our Passover, referring to us as Christians as being delivered, of course, supernaturally as well. And we know that metaphorically, that blood of Christ has been smeared over our doorpost. And not only have we been set free from slavery to sin, but the penalty that comes with it. All of us have this blessing. We all have a deliverance story. Now, your story might be a little bit different than mine because God calls us and delivers us at different points in our lives, in different walks. Whether we're thinking we're on the highest of highs when God calls us or the lowest of lows. All of us have experienced the deliverance. And one of the key things about that deliverance is that when God begins to call you, when God begins to work with you, you realize how absolutely empty and enslaved you are when you realize the truth of what the penalty, what sin involves, and the reality of us deserving death. The second thing is that the cloud that led them in the wilderness symbolize God's supernatural guidance. Let's go to Numbers, the ninth chapter, and read this just in the original. Numbers, the ninth chapter, verse 15. The beginning of the tabernacle being raised up, we read, Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey 
And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. And the command, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued long, many days, above the tabernacle, children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. Verse 20, So it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain in camp, and according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey, whether by day or by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year, the cloud remained above the tabernacle. The children of Israel would remain in camp and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. At the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Excuse me. At the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. And at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And we as Christians, we've been given kind of a metaphorical cloud as well with God's Spirit. God's Spirit is our guidance in our life. We have been given God's Spirit. We've been given brethren. We've been given a structure to be a part of, a church, a part of Christ's body and the Word of God. And that Spirit is that ingredient that opens and unlocks the door to understanding this Word of God. And chiefly, that great example that we have, Jesus Christ, which is a tremendous blessing. Third, they had a physical leader who God appointed to lead them, through whom they would receive instruction. And we know that Moses was the chosen leader of the children of Israel. That God, through Moses, God delivered the children of Israel. I read this in my last message, but this one verse, John 1, verse 17, we know that John wrote, when he's talking about this logos, this word that became flesh, he said, for, in verse 17 of chapter 1, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we know that the Bible reveals, and is very specific, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy that was at the end of of Moses' life in Deuteronomy 18. That God at one point would raise up a prophet that would raise up a prophet like Moses and we know that Jesus is that ultimate fulfillment. That He has given us someone that He associates with and that is Christ, a prophet. He is our spiritual leader. And of course we can see all of the different examples specifically in the Epistle of Hebrews, as well as in other places where Jesus is compared to Moses. Not in the sense of who's better. We, of course, know that Jesus is the ultimate, that Jesus is this new lawgiver, the one that's bringing the true bread of life, as we'll talk about here in just a minute. But then we get this really interesting, I guess you'd say, wording here when he says, all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. Now, we have a baptism. Baptism, as we have come to understand it, as the New Testament presents it to us, it refers to an immersion. An immersion in water for the purpose of cleansing 
of persecution, or as we shall see, dying with Christ is a watery grave, aligning ourselves with His death, burial, and of course, resurrection as we come up in newness of life. But it's interesting that Paul says this, that they were all baptized into Moses. And I looked into this a little bit, and it's not necessarily saying that these people were baptized the way that we think of baptism, but rather that they became in line with God through Moses. That through Moses, and there's this idea that's associated with baptism during this time, and it would refer sometimes to anything that takes on a union with some sort of object or thing. And the term would sometimes refer to garments. They would take garments like cloth and they would immerse it in a dye. And that dye would take the form, of course, of the color of the dye. And so Israel was baptized, of course, not by water immersion, as we understand it as Christians, but by following God through Moses' lead and submitting to his authority. In Romans, the sixth chapter, verse three, we know that in our baptism, we are baptized in Christ. Verse three of Romans six, or do you not know that as many as were baptized in Christ were baptized into his death? And I mentioned that just a minute ago where Jesus dies and put in a tomb. We understand death and you go into a grave and that immersion is a symbolism, is an expression. We can go into baptism. It's there's no need to, or by no means am I trying to adequately express all the different ideas associated with baptism, but one of them is, is that we are dying with Christ. We are entering into that death, and we're coming up in newness of life. Galatians, the third chapter, verse 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We've been placed in a union with Christ, of course, through our baptism. The fourth blessing, they were provided supernatural food, and we know that, of course, came in the form of what's known as manna. And they were also provided water from the rock, supernaturally. Six days a week, God would provide manna that would fall from the sky, that they would wake up to, that would be on the ground, and he would give them instructions that six days a week they'd go out and to gather that manna up. And on the sixth day, of course, take a double portion so they could not have to do it on the seventh day as a preparation for the Sabbath. And Jesus, of course, again a parallel, talks about this idea of the manna from heaven, the bread of life in John the sixth chapter. We're not going to go there. And he also talks about providing us living waters in John the seventh chapter. Fifth thing, the fifth question that Paul brings out, Christ was the source of their every need, as he is the source of our every need. Now, it's kind of interesting that they're talking about Christ being within Israel. And Paul is getting at this, this idea that Christ, the pre-existence, individual that we eventually know as Jesus was present, was a part of that divine Elohim that was working with Israel. Of course, we know that despite these blessings, these five blessings that Paul brought out, the Israelites, they did not please God. They strayed 
after their own desires and fell into disobedience. And this disobedience had grave consequences for this first generation of ancient Israelites. Number one, no one over the age of 20, the military age, was allowed to enter into the promised land, except for two individuals, Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses himself was disqualified, and we know that it was for different reasons, and we can read that in Numbers, the 20th chapter. And the reference says that their bodies being spread in the wilderness simply means that they died. They all died. And what Paul is getting at here is he's saying to these Corinthians that are wrapping themselves up in all these different things, is he's saying, be careful. I'm telling you this as a warning. Consider your forefathers, ancient Israel, that first generation. Look at the blessings that they had, the same ones you did, and they still didn't succeed. They still didn't succeed. He wanted them to understand that you can't just get too comfortable. You can't just rely on your blessings. You can't just say, well, I've been called. I've been baptized. God's given me this inheritance, these promises. I know the truth. He's warning them. He's warning them to live a life, as Matthew 6, chapter verse 33 says, that shouldn't be your attitude, but to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Because apparently... Many of these in Corinth felt that the liberty that they had now in Christ meant that they could go around doing whatever they wanted. Let's read on in 1 Corinthians, verse 6 through 13. It says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, our warning, upon the ends of the ages have come. Verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as, common, such, is, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so to my second main point, learn from others, in particular, the ancient Israelites and the Corinthians, as Paul's presenting this, learn from others and don't make your own pleasure your God. That's easy to do, isn't it? And these last, or these next few verses that we just read, Paul identifies the sins that resulted in this first generation of Israel being disqualified from the promised land. And he listed these things, of course, and he does so because he wants the Corinthians to benefit to not repeat their mistakes. An interesting note, when you see that word example, it's actually the word typos or typoi, which we get the English word, of course, types from. And this word gives us the idea 
that they are examples, that they are types, that they are things that can be repeated, that they are patterns that can happen again in history. And we know, of course, that they do. And that we can learn lessons from them. Now, there's several things that's brought out, uh, you know, that Paul wants us to understand. And one of them is the idea, I guess you'd say, of idolatry. We know that the ancient Israelites fell into idolatry. And so were the Corinthians. We know that Exodus, the 32nd chapter, we have all read the story of the golden calf. Moses goes up on the mountain. He takes too long. They decide themselves, I don't know what happened to this Moses. Aaron, make us a god, and you lead us to where we need to go. And of course, they fashioned that golden calf. It wasn't just a random idea someone had, but they fashioned that golden calf. They made that golden calf after what they thought in their mind what God should be. Because when we read that story, they don't say, here's Baal. They say, look, here's the Lord your God. They changed God into the fashion which they wanted him to be. And of course, we know in that, there's all types of sexual immorality that went on. The, the people rose up to play. Paganism has many different sexual immorality practices involved in it. Now, of course, we don't maybe have those same types of idolatry in the meat. And what I mean by that is it might not look the same for us. But it would be a mistake for us to believe that we can't ourselves fall in to our current culture and the idolatry that our culture has to offer. See, the Corinthians, they might have had a culture that was maybe more similar to Egypt. Paganism, temples, worship prostitution. But we live in an age where we think, well, we don't have all those things, so the things that we do, that's not idolatry. We're not bowing down to anything. I think that idolatry can be anything we give too much emphasis to in our lives to the point that we become immersed in and almost it becomes the object of our identity. It becomes the primary focus of our lives. And it can be all types of areas. It can be in entertainment. It can be in hobbies, politics, your job, sports. This one's for me, I feel like, because I can get way too wrapped up in sports. I, I'm telling you, it's embarrassing how upset I can get when my Oklahoma Sooners lose a football game. I know some Liverpool fans in here might identify that with them a little bit. Of course, money, material things. Those are obvious. Those are obvious things. How about inappropriate relationships? Or unhealthy relationships? Even church gave a message about this a few years ago. Uh, it's even possible, in my opinion, to turn things within church. You know, 
symbols or things that are supposed to aid us in our worship to God, I think that we can make an idol of it. And I think that we have examples of this within our own tradition in our past. The format of church, the style of music that we select, the type of attire we wear to church. All of those things are all good and well, but we can get to the point where we become so focused on those things that they become the object of our focus and the object of our worship to the point where we feel like unless you do these things this way and this way and this way, you're not really worshiping God appropriately. We can turn, and I'm going to give you an example of this, how something that God ordained can be turned into an idol in just a minute. But two other things, not just idolatry, but Paul also lists testing God and complaining against God in verse 9 and 10. The Israelites, of course, we know, tested and complained against God on several occasions. One of them was with the story of the manna. What God provided them in their minds wasn't good enough. They got to where they abhorred it in verse 4, four through 9 of Numbers, the 21st chapter. Let's go there real quick. We read this story that ends up having a big impact in the history of Israel, but even into the New Testament and becomes a part of Jesus' you know, theological, I guess you would say, uh, sayings that we read in the Gospel. It says in verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the souls of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, so Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was that the serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent who lived. And we can just drive down the road and see an ambulance pass us to this day and we see that symbol, right? symbol of a staff or a rod and a serpent twirling around it. It comes from this story. And the reason I brought up the story is because this is an example of Israel, of course, complaining and testing God. And we see this story, it has an example or it has an illustration to idolatry itself. Because this whole purpose was, number one, to be a sign, a reminder of Israel's curse because of the rebelliousness. But it was also supposed to be a sign of faith that people who looked at this, that they had faith that they would be healed, that God would heal them. Now the reason I say that this is kind of related to that idea of church idols is because later on during the time of Hezekiah, they had turned this bronze serpent, that is Israel, into a relic of worship. Second Kings verse 18 Verses 1 through 4 says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. 
He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And this is one of the things that he had to do in verse 4. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. He cut down that item, that piece, that God commanded Moses to erect. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it the husband. So this is just an example of how idolatry can even happen from things that God ordains if we inappropriately use them in the wrong way. In verse 10, we see, and I'm going to skip down here. So we just kind of saw in verse 10 how a part of it, not only did they test God, but they complained about it to the God. We know that they complained about the manna, uh, they complained about being stuck in the wilderness and just going around and around to the point where some of them actually set their heart to, to turn. They didn't want Moses to lead them anymore. They wanted someone else. They wanted just to turn around and to go back to Egypt. And we see that in the Corinthian church, there was complaining as well. There was dissatisfaction with what God has provided them. Because what we know is, is that God provided them not only the gospel to come to them, but He provided them leaders. He provided them individuals that served them. And one of the themes that this letter addresses, and Paul has to address himself, is the division in the church because some people decided, well, I'm with this person, or I'm with that person. We see this in the first chapter of that is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I think this is important to point out. Because we, unfortunately, know of situations where people in our own tradition have done this. In churches of God, and this isn't to be negative against them, but this is just to be real. We have, unfortunately, people that won't even associate with other individuals that are outside of their own church organization because they believe their church is the one true church that they follow this person, this leader, or that leader. Everyone else is lukewarm. They're the Philadelphia church, and I'm not talking about necessarily the Philadelphia church of God in another town in Oklahoma. But they look at themselves as they're the church that's pointed out in Revelation, that's doing everything right, and the others are ready to feel lukewarm. They have all of these different problems with them. And we can get into that. And Paul gives a warning here, an admonition by pointing to Israel, especially to those in this church. And I want to kind of reiterate a little bit about what Paul, or not Paul, excuse me, what Steve talked about in his first message. His recent friends, 
I think a lot of those recent trends that he talks about, I'm sure, and I think you would agree with me, that Satan loves to try to get us ensnared in some of those recent trends. And to climb in bed with some of those, and those ideas. You see, Paul was talking to individuals. When we read this entire letter, it's somewhat complex, but some of the problems was that people were going around that, I have this liberty now in Christ. I can do these things. I know that, you know, these temples, these meat offerings to idols and these temples, that they do, they do things that worship other gods, but I know they're not real. They're not affecting me. And Paul's like, I'm not speaking for Paul, but essentially, like, you fool. Because he's referencing, like, you think you're so strong in your faith that you can just go associate with all these things. And sometimes they would claim even the law, secular law, like, I have this freedom to do this. And the reason this is important is because it's about this idea of being overconfident and not remembering who we are. We have been redeemed. We have been given these blessings. But when we live a life where our actions really don't associate with what we claim to believe, we are putting ourselves in a bad situation. We are putting ourselves at risk that could lead us to a spiritual fall in the case that we see in Israel. But as Paul believes, the Corinthians were coding that. My third main point, don't take part in false worship and practices, but rather flee from them. And this comes from the very last portion of the passages in in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. Let's read them real quick. Paul says this to conclude, basically, this section. There's more to 1 Corinthians 10, but he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves that what I say, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than they? And so here Paul is trying to draw this analogy by using, of course, none other but the holy symbols that we partake of in Passover. Specifically, the New Testament Passover. When we come together during that Passover season, we partake of the symbols that Jesus showed us, which is the symbols of the bread and the wine that represent His body and His blood. And in doing that, we are proclaiming His death and proclaiming our union with Christ and renewing that covenant we've made with God symbolizing our solidarity with God, which naturally, of course, forbids any other union 
And so what Paul is saying is, is that you've been unionized with Christ, and now you're trying to do these other things. That, uh, uh, you know, people that are, even though you know that these idols are nothing, that there is no other God, there's only one God, think about what you are at least appearing to put yourself at union with. Either from the Gentiles, they see that, oh, yeah, Christianity is just like everything else. You have a primary religion, but you have all these other sub-religions, because that's kind of how it was. You believed in your patron God, but you also paid homage and believed in all the other patron deities. And then we know that this is what Israel as well did. They, of course, wrapped themselves in to paganism, idolatry, they wanted to be like everyone else in the world. They didn't want to be different. They were supposed to be the example. But of course, they didn't live up to that. And that the Christians at Corinth were at risk of falling into the same thing. So I have four points of application today. Obviously, my main points are points of application, but number one, don't underestimate the power and influences of the world, of Satan, and of our human nature that still sometimes tries to overcome us. One thing, as going back to what Steve kind of brought to us, these recent friends, what I've noticed is, is that they are fierce at trying to get us to accept those. Those items that are clearly in opposition to God's Word, in opposition, in my opinion, just to human decency. And they are relentless at trying to get us to accept them. It's not enough just to say, okay, I agree to disagree with some of these individuals. Secondly, remember sometimes that what or who we associate with can lead to idolatry and immorality. Don't put ourselves at risk. Whether this be with movies, TV, the people, or friends that we associate with, social events, be mindful of the things. And remember that we partook of the bread and the wine. It's, I mean, obviously, we're all going to fall. We're all going to make mistakes. But be careful about what we associate with. I like this quote from John MacArthur in his New Testament commentary. He says, Idolatry includes much more than bowing down or burning incense to a physical image. Idolatry is having any false god, any object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern and loyalty. Or that to any degree decreases one's trust in and loyalty Unfortunately, I feel like, you know, believe, you know, true believers, we know that there is a such thing as justice. That God wants justice in this world. Unfortunately, I feel like some have twisted what that means. And I feel like some people, when I, you know, we can talk about churches uh, that have split over certain items, certain issues, uh, but also other churches that are embracing things that clearly are not the gospel. They're not the gospel. 
Third, remember the union we have made with God that it excludes all other unions. We can have hobbies, of course. We can make money, and God expects us to make money. We can have material things. Of course we can. We all have material things. My dad had many material things, as I mentioned at the beginning of this message. But the point is, is that don't get so wrapped up in the shiny things of this world to the point where that's almost like you live and die off of that. It might be philosophy, too. It might be ideas. And number four, don't become self-confident like the Corinthians seem to be. And the illustration, of course, that Paul was using pointing to ancient Israel. Don't become self-confident to the point where you feel like you've arrived. That you don't just have to keep pushing. That any moment you can feel like, you know, that, 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 that your human nature is not going to creep up on you anymore. That there isn't a roaring lion speaking to whomever he may devour. Remember always to rely on God. Remember that He is the source of our every need. We must remember the admonition that Paul gives us by pointing to the lesson of Israel in the wilderness and how they traded close to the edge. And it's easy to do in our own age. It's sometimes we read about these items or these activities that they're involved in and we think that's yeah, so far from you know what our life is like and you know we don't have those things, but we do. And I would say we have them even worse because everything is in our face constantly. It's hard to get away from this. I mean, if you think about it, this stuff, it permeates everything. You can't, you, you can't even really do a job anymore. I mean, I'm not saying that. I mean, you can. Obviously, I do, you know, in my line of work, I, I do, you know, work on computers and technology, and I have to read things and stuff that are coming out. And there's other jobs where you can kind of avoid that. But so much of our world is wrapped up to the point where it's hard to get away from some of these issues that everybody argues about. And everybody tries to push on you. So, as we close this today, remember the admonition, the warning that Paul gave us, that he gave us, and in particular, the blessings that God has given us in our salvation. Not to take them for granted. The lessons that God gives us in his word, the guidance that God gives us through, of course, his Holy Spirit, that cloud by day for us, and pillar by night. Remember that individual that God has appointed to be our leader, Jesus Christ, and what He's done for Him. And most importantly, remember the union that we've made with Christ, with God our Father, through Christ. And we've immersed ourselves that we've died with Him in that watery grave, and we came up in newness of life, and we have now put on Christ. And that union with Christ means that we cannot be unionized with anything else on this earth.